Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's what you'll need to know. Border blocked, thousands of migrants still stranded in Belarus. Presidential press pass, China to welcome back US journalists one day after the leaders talk. And high voltage valuations, shares and EV makers continue to charge. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move and a show filled with the latest on futuristic chips, energy supply dips and EV road trips. Chipmaker Qualcomm, the big U.S. stock market gainer Tuesday, diversification exaltation, I think is how I describe the response to the firm's plans to expand its focus on smartphones to smart cars, smart cities, and even even helping power the metaverse. Yes, don't worry, we'll explain. The company's CEO will join us shortly. And if it's smart to go electric, then we certainly have you covered. Even as electric truck maker Rivian's roaring valuation rivets our attention, another player is plugging and charging up. The CEO of Vietnamese car brand VinFast is also coming up later on on the show. Plus, the finance minister of Greece on Europe's triple economic threat, energy, COVID and rising prices. And on that note, data from the Eurozone today showing inflation last month was still way above the European Central Bank's targets. UK inflation, meanwhile, is at 10-year highs too, greatly increasing the likelihood that the Bank of England raises rates in December. Now, on Wall Street, stocks within a hairbreadth of records after a supermarket trolley filled with good retail news. Retailers lows upping, upping its forecast today. Target also, well, on target too. In Japan, meanwhile, auto exports missing the target, falling more than 35% year over year due to the supply chain crisis. Japanese stocks suffered as a result. Car giants Nissan, Honda and Mitsubishi all weighing on the market there. Okay, let's get right to the drivers. Migrants stranded along the border between Belarus and Poland are facing another day of uncertainty. About a 1,000 people were given bread and shelter at a processing centre in Belarus overnight, but many are still waiting at the razor wire fence with Poland. CNN's Matthew Chance reports from a migrant holding facility near the border. We are right in the middle of this processing centre that over the course of the past just 12 hours or so since last night after that violence ended, uh, Belarusian officials and forces have been moving the migrants from that forest camp bringing them indoors at this location, about a mile back uh, from the border crossing with Poland. It, it's still, you know, pretty fun, you know, rudimentary conditions that people are in. But at least we are inside with some shelter from the increasingly cold weather conditions outside. You know, people have got mattresses to sleep on. Um, they've got blankets to put over them. They're being given food uh, outside. They've been given hot tea and, and bread. Uh, the Belarusian officials that we've spoken to say they aim to provide these people with at least one hot meal a day. Still not very much, but it's better than no hot meals a day. And you can see the general atmosphere here is a lot sort of, I wouldn't say happy, but people are a lot more comfortable than they were uh, outside in the freezing forest camp right up against the razor wire of the Polish border. The big question is, of course, what is going to happen next to these people? Are they ever going to achieve their 
you know, objective of getting into the European Union. It doesn't look likely at the moment. The reaction of the Polish authorities yesterday spraying the crowds with water cannon to push them back from any prospect of getting near to the barricades was a, an indication that the Poles, at least, and the European Union in general, are reluctant to take these people in. Um, we're being told by Belarusian officials that they are waiting for a decision from Germany about whether there is some kind of humanitarian corridor that could be opened, possibly via Poland, possibly by air, straight from here to Germany. But that is not confirmed at all. And in fact, over the past couple of days, the Germans have made it clear they don't intend to take these people in either. The alternative, according to Belarusian officials, is that these people will ultimately be, ultimately be deported back to their countries of origin. For the most part, that would be Iraq. The majority of people here are from Iraqi Kurdistan. Okay, let's move on to restrictions relaxed. The US and China have agreed to ease visa requirements for journalists a day after virtual talks between President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. They also agreed to consider holding talks on arms controls. Tensions over Taiwan surfaced in their discussions on Tuesday, and President Biden's making clear the United States is not changing its policy on Taiwan. I said that they have to decide. They, Taiwan, not us. And we are not encouraging independence. We're encouraging that they do exactly what the Taiwan Act requires. Ivan Watson joins us on this. Ivan, I want to hone in on what's happened for journalists that are hoping to work in China and have been working in China. Let's be clear. Um, this was not something I believe that was directly discussed between the presidents, but it does sound like a token, perhaps, towards some form of greater trust. Talk to us about what's going on and what you make of it. Yeah, I mean, you have the world's two largest economies and their relationships have basically cratered over the last year or two. Uh, you've just had this virtual summit between the two heads of state. And this is the first example of something concrete that may or may not have come out of a dialogue. Let's put it that way. And that is that the tit for tat moves in 2020 between the Trump administration and Beijing, where Chinese and U.S. journalists had their visas cut to 90 days and they were no longer multi-entry but single entry. We now have this announcement, first coming from the Chinese side, that visas will be extended to one year and that journalists will be able to apply for those visas and get multi-entry visas. So in 2020, the Trump administration, it basically deemed a lot of Chinese state media organizations that had presences in the U.S. as uh, essentially foreign diplomatic missions and severely restricted their operations. China expelled journalists from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, uh, from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, if this follows through, theoretically, both sides will be able to get more journalists in each other's countries. The Chinese state media saying at least 20 Chinese journalists have uh, had their visa applications denied by the U.S. since 2018. Look at what the uh, CEO of the Wall Street Journal had to say in a statement to CNN, writing, we're encouraged by the reported direction of these negotiations and continue to believe that independent, accurate reporting from within China serves our readers and serves China itself. 
itself. And this uh, severe restrictions on the visas had affected U.S. journalists working for CNN in China. They couldn't leave the country uh, and travel home to see their families. Pretty uh, severe stuff. A U.S. State Department official uh, telling CNN that they see this Washington as progress, but as initial steps. A big question now, I'd say, Julia, could there be other potential developments? Another example of the tit-for-tat deterioration of relations in 2020, both the U.S. and China uh, closed uh, consulates in Houston uh, and in Chengdu. Uh, That would be certainly a much bigger deal. And just a final note, when it does come to press freedoms, it's still a big issue here. For example, here in Hong Kong, uh, an Australian journalist, a correspondent for The Economist, just had her visa uh, renewal application rejected by the Hong Kong government. Uh, It's still tough for foreign journalists to work in mainland China and increasingly here in Hong Kong. Yeah, so we watch for additional steps and um, hope to see them. Ivan, great to have you with us. Thank you for your context. Ivan Watson, there. Okay, let's move on. A purely positive charge. EV stocks meeting zero resistance as they power their way to sky-high valuations. Electric truck maker Rivian now up 120% from its IPO a week ago, making it the world's third most valuable car maker. It's worth more than VW. Meanwhile, smaller rival Lucid now has a higher valuation than Ford. Paula Monica joins me now. Wow, we should bring that screen up again because that, I think, brings it home. Ford, $78 billion. GM, $91 billion. Tesla's a trillion dollars. I've got my own numbers here. Rivian, $148 billion. Um, you know, I think Tesla proved, at least initially, that you don't need profits for these kind of valuations. Rivian's proving, at least in the short term, that you don't need revenues either, Paul. It really is starting to get bubblicious again, if you ask me, Julia, and I'm someone who lived through the uh, late 90s dot-com boom and bust. I covered it, and I remembered how a lot of companies were trying to ride the coattails of Amazon, and everyone wanted to be an e-commerce juggernaut, and uh, not a lot of them uh, wound up surviving. Now, to be fair to Rivian, which does have impressive backing from the likes of uh, Amazon and Ford. This is a real company that plans to have a product on the market that could very well be one that a lot of consumers will buy. But the valuations at this point, investors are looking so far ahead into the future to try and extrapolate what the revenue and profits might be decades down the road. It just seems way too premature for a company like Rivian to deserve this type of valuation. Lucid, you can argue it's a little less frothy, but that's you know not saying much, but at least Lucid already has something on the market that just won Motor Trend Car of the Year as well. So Lucid, there, is, there are revenues coming in, no profits, of course, but I think investors just have to be careful here. This doesn't mean that electric cars aren't the future. It just means that the valuations right now are absurd. And that's such a great distinction, because when the bulls talk about Tesla, and that is in a league of its own with this kind of valuation, when we're talking about a trillion dollars, they always say it has to be valued like a technology company, not a car company. But as we see more and more of the traditional car makers transition to electric cars and smarter cars, I think that distinction is blurred. Um, Yeah, you're punchy with your uh, with your comments here, Paul, and I I can't um, I can't disagree. Musk, Elon Musk tweeted actually about Rivian, and he said the true test would be whether it can achieve high production 
production and break-even cash flow. And Elon Musk knows a lot about the challenges in achieving that. And for that, we're just going to have to wait and see. But I just wonder whether you think some part of the rally that we're seeing, given all the pressure that we've seen and we've been talking about in recent days on on Tesla share prices, retail investors diversifying into some of the other car makers, because obviously there's pressure on on Tesla share price with Elon Musk selling so many shares. Yeah, that is a fantastic point, Julie. You obviously have Tesla stock having this amazing run. It is cooling off a little bit, partly because of Musk selling some of his stock. And I think also that, uh, you know, when you look at Rivian and Lucid, who are the CEOs of Rivian and Lucid? The average investor probably doesn't know who they are. And in this respect, it might actually be a good thing because guess what? The CEOs of Rivian and Lucid aren't on Twitter attacking Bernie Sanders and other senators, which, you know, in hindsight might not have been the smartest PR move for Elon Musk. Sure, it wins him more fans from the Musk faithful, but it might turn off a lot of people who are wondering, do I really want to be investing in a company where a CEO is that much of a loose cannon on social media? Not so sure. It's worked for him so far, Paul. Worked for him so, so far. I'm prepared to take the other side of that trade. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. We do have some fun. All right. Also looking to join the electric charge on Wall Street is Vietnam's VinFast. The EV maker said to be considering a US IPO. It's unveiling plans to break into the US market today. And we will be speaking to VinFast's CEO later on in the show, ever-increasing competition. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. ISIS has claimed responsibility for a pair of suicide bombings in Uganda's capital. At least three people were killed in Tuesday's attacks and 36 wounded. Authorities say they've stepped up security in the capital and have arrested 81 suspects. Ireland is one of the latest EU countries to reimpose COVID-19 restrictions as new infections sweep across the continent. Starting Thursday, there will be a midnight curfew on all bars, restaurants and nightclubs, and people are being urged to work from home. Belgium is also expected to announce new COVID-19 restrictions. Day two of jury deliberations in the Carl Rittenhouse homicide trial will get underway later in Wisconsin. The jury requested more copies of the judge's instructions yesterday. Rittenhouse is facing five felony charges for fatally shooting two people and wounding another during unrest last year in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And still to come here on First Move, Power Play. As we mentioned, Vietnam's EV maker VinFast makes its US debut with two new cars and a brand new Los Angeles HQ. But first, recovery and restrictions. The Greek finance minister joins First Move as Athens unveils new rules for unvaccinated people. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The Wall Street Bulls hoping for some Wednesday wonderfulness, a quiet pre-market, but a modest move higher would put the S&P 500 at fresh record highs. End of the year optimism in full swing, but Goldman CEO David Solomon now warning that, quote, greed has far outpaced fear. History, of course, proves we can be greedier. That was my quote, not his, by the way. Meanwhile, all of us a little bit greedy for some holiday cheer. New York City says the public will be allowed back into Times Square for New Year's Eve festivities this year if you have proof of vaccination. But disappointment in Germany, the Munich Christmas market has just been cancelled due to rising COVID cases there. 
Greece is seeing its highest number of new COVID cases since the pandemic began. To fight the surge, the government is reimposing some restrictions targeting the unvaccinated. There is positive news, though, too. The European Commission is almost doubling its growth forecast for Greece after unexpectedly strong tourism season this year. We're now joined by the Greek Finance Minister Christos Stikoris from Athens. Finance Minister, great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us and for your time today. Let's talk about the good news and the upgraded growth forecast. What's driving that and what does that mean critically for jobs and employment? First of all, I would like to thank you, Julia, for the invitation. Indeed, we have very positive results and forecasts for the Greek economy not only coming from the European Commission, but also from all foreigners and institutions. And this will be confirmed on Friday when we will submit the budget. It seems that we will have a strong and sustainable growth rate for the period 2021-2023. Unemployment has been reduced to 13% according to what was published today. Disposable income has been increased. What drives the growth rate? mainly investments and extroversion, exports. According to the European Commission, we will have a significant increase of exports and investments by around 8% and 15% respectively uh, in 2022, when the European average will be 5% and 0% respectively for 2022. I mean, this is this is all good news. The wild card, of course, for Greece, but for many other nations, and we discuss this on a daily basis, is is rising COVID cases. And I mentioned some of the restrictions that the government's already having to put into place. How restrictive and how concerned are you for small businesses that have already spent many months over the past year and a half um, in challenging conditions? Are there more measures that you can take perhaps to help them? We have taken a lot of measures, more than, 43, <laughs> more than 33 billion euros in the last couple of years in order to create a safety net uh, above households and enterprises. And we succeeded according to what I presented uh, before and I shared with you. Indeed, we have a couple of crises at the moment to face, a challenges. One challenge has to do with the health crisis, but take into account the new measures that we have imposed, it seems that we have a significant increase in the vaccination rate in the last couple of weeks, either with the first dose or with the third dose. And the second challenge we have to face has to do with inflation. We have lower inflation rates compared with the European average, but it's still, it's, it is still very high. So we take one of measures and permanent measures in order to enhance even more disposable income and to avoid creating turbulences in the real economy. I mean, small businesses are saying, look, um, can you please help us more with perhaps tax breaks, with rent control? If you have to impose further restrictions from here, will you at least contemplate perhaps looking at additional one-off measures? As you said, there's many issues that you're dealing with here, inflation, uh, COVID, rising energy prices, all sorts of things. Will you contemplate more measures if they're needed? It depends on the fiscal space we'll have. Right. But irrespectively of how they work and how they provide, uh, the real economy has been helped a lot uh, previously. Even in the last three months, we continue to help the private sector. And we will continue to do that 
by one of measures if it is needed. But at the same time, as I said with you before, we have to take one of measures in order to tackle the energy crisis. And in this case, you can see that in the last couple of weeks, we had some state subsidies for all low voltage consumers. We have a refund of the special consumption tax for the agricultural sector. We have the heating allowance, which has been enhanced. So we try simultaneously to tackle all these crises by taking into account the cash reserves we have, but at the same time, fiscal considerations. You've also said to the EU that there should be a fund to help not just Greece, but all other countries. And this is something that, that Greece itself has been pushing, a fund to help people manage the higher energy costs. What has the feedback been from Europe? We're discussing it collectively at the European level with the ministers of energy. Uh, indeed, we had a joint statement with the minister of finance from France, from uh, Spain, from, uh, uh, if I remember well, from uh, Czech Republic and from Romania, in order to ask for collective actions, either by creating a common approach at the European level, either by having an intuition of what is going on in the gas market, uh, either regarding the wholesale electricity market and at the same time achieving an energy independence by investing in the diversification of our energy supply. We are discussing this issue collectively with other ministers, not only finance ministers, but also ministers of the energy sector. I think one of the other challenges that Greece understands well is the economic cost, the, the human cost of the migrant crisis. And Greece has been on the front lines for many years and I think understands this best. Can I ask what you make of the situation right now with the migrant crisis on the Polish-Belarus border and whether you think the EU can do more to help, whether Greece can afford financially perhaps to do more to help? Greece's borders, you know very well, are also the European Union Eastern borders. Due to the geopolitical position and geopolitical tensions, Greece is familiar with dealing with this sensitive crisis and sensitive issue. We have reinforced our actions along with our European counterparts to tackle the migration crisis in the most human and constructive way, always following the path of the European and international law. And we will continue to do that. This case, the immigration case, is also something that we have raised regarding the fiscal rules that we started to discuss at the European level. In order to exclude this cost from the expenditure we are going to, to face in the following years regarding the fiscal, the fiscal rules, the targets and the requirements needed and agreed in the future. Yeah, and this is such a crucial point. We're coming off the back of COP26. I know your debt levels, your deficit levels coming out of COVID, never mind the financial crisis. If you want to be able to invest in renewable technologies, in infrastructure of the future, there needs to be more fiscal room to allow for spending, whether it's this or anything else. That, I know, is another part of the discussions that you're having in the EU. Do you think it's possible to get debt relief in order to be able to make productive spending? on essentials like this to future-proof your economy? Uh, we raise two issues. If we will have the fiscal space 
and if we will have the money in order to mm. invest in resources. Uh, indeed, uh, one week ago, we started discussing the fiscal rules at the European level, at the Eurogroup and ECOFIN level. It was a very productive, fruitful discussion. And our position is that the new rules should take into account the experience we have from the recent crisis, but also from the European uh, debt crisis. The new European fiscal rules should be common and credible, should be appropriate and effective, should be simple and functional, should be up-to-date and dynamic. In order to find the resources and invest in order to to achieve the climate uh, change, uh, we have two sources. We have, first of all, the National Recovery and Resilience Plan, where 38% of the whole envelope is targeted towards the climate. And at the same time, we are going to issue a new bond, a green bond, in the second semester of 2022. And at the moment, we are planning to build a solid portfolio of eligible projects to be financed through a sustainable or a green bond. These are the two sources, the two main sources, in order to find money and invest on the green transition. And at the same time, we expect that going forward in 2022, through the discussions for the fiscal rules, we will manage to exclude these investments in the European priorities from the expenses that will be calculated in the fiscal rules. Do you think the Germans will agree? We will discuss it. <laughs> Work in progress. <laughs> we, yes. we just started. We just started. I know. Started. There's time. We have a year ahead. So great to chat to you. Come back and talk to us about this because we need all funds to invest in green bonds. And this will uh, start some kind of revolution, financial revolution, to, to achieve this. The Greek finance minister there, Christos Stikros, great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. The market open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. That was the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange, and we're hovering near record highs on the S&P. The question is, what's the catalyst that pushes us higher from here? The European Central Bank today pointing out some of the challenges, warning of what it calls exuberance in housing, junk bonds and crypto assets. Big moves in the meantime in retail stocks in early trade. Lowe's rallying after beating on the top and bottom lines and raising its forecast to target giant retailer there. Two numbers also strong, but investors concerned about the company's focus on keeping prices low. Target is so far not passing on those higher prices that it's feeling from suppliers to consumers. The question is, does that crush margins? Earnings season not over yet. Gaming chip giant NVIDIA reporting after the closing bell. Its prospects rising on hopes for the metaverse. Shares are up more than 130% so far this year. And tied to that, smart cities, intelligent cars, and once again, the metaverse. Qualcomm 
the world's biggest maker of smartphone chips, used its investors' data, I think, address perhaps some misconceptions. Nearly 40% of its sales are actually made outside of the handset business, focused on future technologies for customers like Walmart, Amazon, BMW, and GM. The stock surged 8% yesterday, hitting a record high. It's gained 40% in just the past month alone. And joining us now, President and CEO of Qualcomm, Cristiano Amon. Cristiano, fantastic to have you on the show. You know, I read your whole investor presentation yesterday, and one of the phrases that stood out to me was, we're enabling a world where everyone and everything is intelligently connected. And I think that cuts to the heart of the technology you provide, not just in terms of of the handset technology, but how it's applicable to many other technologies and technologies of the future. You you got it. Uh, Good to be here talking to you. Uh, This is an exciting time for Qualcomm. We design uh, technologies such as 5G that go beyond the phone and connect everything to the cloud 100% of the time. And that's really materializing on the incredible opportunities we see happening for Qualcomm, where there's really demand for technology across virtually every industry. Can you explain in more detail? I mean, I think, and you had some of these stats in your presentation, the fact that we're seeing cloud growth, people utilizing the cloud and storing data on the cloud at 35% a year. And if you believe we're going to continue to see such strong growth and a lot of the data that's being created is actually outside of that, we're going to have to find smart, intelligent ways of connecting that data, accessing the cloud and utilizing that data. And that, again, cuts to the core of what you're doing, whether it's working with some of the biggest car makers in the world on smart cars, whether it's making businesses operate in a more intelligent way, robotics. You sort of have a finger in all of these pies. You know, that's a great, I think that's a great way to describe it. And uh, that, that slide we show in the presentation is one of the key foundations of what's happening to the company. You know, we all believe that the cloud will continue to grow and we have exponential growth projections from the cloud. You see some of the highest valuation companies uh, in the world today in the cloud. And that's assumed that you're going to have all of this data going to the cloud. For that to happen, you need to connect those billions of devices out there, make them intelligent, scale artificial intelligence, advanced processing. And that's our job. We're the company at the edge. And that's why when we talk about what is happening with Qualcomm, we always been the company defining the pace of innovation as mobile and mobile. But now we have this connected intelligent edge, which includes the automotive, the consumer IoT, the enterprise IoT, the network, the new the future of the networking, and that's all driving data that goes to the cloud. So if you believe the growth of the cloud, you gotta believe the growth of Qualcomm. It's interesting because I think one of the challenges, and, I, and when I addressed the idea that I think you were, you tackled some misconceptions of, of the breakdown of the revenue generation of the business, that 40% is outside of handsets, I think you also pleased investors by saying, look, we're going to be really conservative on our relationship with Apple too. We anticipate only providing around 20% of smartphones with chips by 2023. And everyone was like, wow, you can diversify your business away from them that quickly. Project forward, if you can, for me, two, three, five years, what percent of the overall revenues of the company are outside of handsets? Look, uh, today, when we finish this last earnings call, we finish our fiscal year, 
we indicated that about 40% of the revenues of the company was outside handsets. And here's a couple of data points I can give it to you. Um, one of the most remarkable things that is happening with the company, and it's really proving that this, uh, this diversification is really working. In mobile, we are just at the beginning of the 5G transition. So mobile is, is really growing very, very fast for two reasons, the 5G migration, and the fact that there were changes in the OEM landscape that create opportunities for us to grow faster than the market within Android. Android is the fastest growing segment in mobile. But even if you put up those two tailwinds that we have for the mobile business, the non-handset business is growing at 1.6 times mobile, much faster. And what, why we didn't disclose the percentage of revenue, we give investors a good insight by showing they used to know Qualcomm as the company that is in the mobile market, great market, fully penetrated, gross single digit. But now we have a 7x expansion in the addressable market. Our addressable market went uh, to 700 billion um, within the next decade as we have all of those opportunities. Which business is more profitable? Um, the way you sh investors started to understand the Qualcomm business model, we talk repeatedly during the presentation that we have one technology roadmap. We just have one uh, technology roadmap that is the most relevant uh, roadmap for what's happening at the edge. As we gain scale, every one of those business is accretive to margins as compared to mobile. So automotive and IoT, they have much higher earnings power because it's just leveraged the roadmap and it's accretive to margins. Yeah, so if you're pivoting your business to what's growing fastest and enables you to make most money, then investors like it. And I think that's what the, perhaps the share reaction was suggesting. Um, I have to talk to you about the metaverse. I think when I mention this on my show, a lot of our viewers' eyes glaze over and go, what on earth is this? And what will this mean to me in the future? So, Cristiano, this is your moment because I know you're and have been working with Facebook in particular, working on their project for Meta and, and the metaverse. What do we need to understand about what this is going to mean for us in the future? All right, this is very clear to us. And uh, we have been investing in the foundation technologies uh, for virtual reality and augmented reality for a long time. We, we were talking about XR and VR and AR when the metaverse wasn't popular. And the reality is the metaverse is going to manifest itself in different versions. You know, you can have a version for consumer and social. You can have a version for the enterprise that I point to what uh, Meta is doing, what Microsoft is doing with the HoloLens. All of those different versions of how we're going to connect physical and digital spaces. And all of those digital spaces are going to get created in the cloud, uh, which is the metaverse. They have one thing in common. You're going to need a device that you're going to wear it. And it's going to be the portal for you to go to the metaverse or the mixed reality. And that's what we're doing. Uh, there are 50 devices that are now available in the market. Uh, they're all powered by Snapdragon XR. So we're going to be your ticket to the metaverse. And, and what is unique about this is we can see a world where we may have our glasses that go alongside our phones. And this opportunity could be as big as phones. You know, I've got a, um, I'm having a beam me up Scotty moment with a smartwatch and then I appear somewhere else, at least virtually. Um, 
it's going to be exciting to see. Cristiano, congratulations on the Investor Day and uh, the investor reaction. And come back and talk to us soon, please. Um, Cristiano Amonde, President and CEO of Qualcomm. Great to chat to you. Okay, Thank you very much. Good seeing you. you. Vietnamese EV maker VinFast making its US debut. The CEO takes a pit stop with us next. Welcome back to First Move. Vietnamese electric vehicle maker VinFast has a big American dream and a bid to break into the U.S. market. It's unveiling two electric SUVs later today. VinFast has already announced a new headquarters in California and plans to invest over $200 million in its U.S. operations. VinFast says deliveries will begin by the end of 2022. And joining us now is Michael Loeschler. He's the CEO of VinFast Global. Michael, a pleasure to have you on the show Give us all the details. What do we need to know about these SUVs? Good morning, Julia. Thanks for having me on your show. So today, very big day for VinFast because we have our debut at the LA Motor Show. How do we do that? We unveil our two electric SUV. Exciting design, a lot of innovation technology in the car, and of course, electric. We come as VinFast only with electric cars to the US because what has worked uh, in the past is not right for the future. So we go electric only. And with this, we really want to open up a new era in terms of smart mobility, sustainable mobility. And of course, we have a lot of technology innovations in the cars. What can you tell me about top speed, charge times and on the road price? I've seen a rumor of around $30,000. That seems very low to me. Am I in the right ballpark or have I got it completely wrong? Well, in terms of pricing, I would say it's a little too early to talk about this, but we are very customer centric. So what we want to do is offer a world class product quality, reasonable prices and then a really good service so that we even come to your home. But in terms of range, just to give you a ballpark. So we have two levels, two different uh, levels of range. So we will be over 500 kilometers. So, so very exciting. But in terms of pricing, as I said, um, we will do that at a later stage. Well, we'll work on that, Michael. What do you see as your competition in the United States? And why do you see this representing an opportunity, perhaps as an alternative going to somewhere like China? Huge potential EV market there, but I believe you're not there. Why the United States and why now? Well, first of all, I mean, the U.S. is a very, very important market globally and we want to compete here. And of course, now the time is right because, I mean, automotive industry is changing. Yeah. And we feel it's a perfect time to come with electric cars and really compete here in this very important market. And of course, we also want to make VinFast a global electric brand. And therefore, we are here today in Los Angeles, but we will also go to Europe. And it's exciting that we can make VinFast this young brand. We are only four years old, coming from Vietnam, a global automotive brand. And obviously, you're part of a much bigger conglomerate than people need to understand, which is um, which is Ving Group, who've appeared on the show in the past. Um, does that cushion you financially in some way? Because we've talked about electric cars and the costs required to invest in this technology and scale up. I see you're looking to have 60 showrooms in the United States next year, looking at Europe, European opportunities as well. Do you need to IPO in the United States, one, just to get the brand name out there, but also to raise cash? Or do you have the luxury of waiting? Well, first of all, as you say, we will build up 60 stores actually here in California because we want to do the distribution ourselves. 
We also look at a local factory in the United States because we feel this is right to do the entire value chain here. And with that, then, of course, we have the support of the Vin Group, which I think is important because on the one hand, VinFast is like a startup company. We do everything extremely fast. I mean, if you think about this, within four years, we are here, a global brand, showing electric cars at the LA Auto Show, and Vin Group is supporting. To your point, on in terms of the IPO, this is an option. Obviously, we look at this in terms of funding, but most important for us today is the unveil of the two cars and making sure the VinFast brand, this young and fresh brand, has a great start here in the United States. Yes, this is just the beginning. Can you rival Tesla in the United States? Bold call, Michael. What do you think? Well, I mean, first of all, what's happening in the market? I mean, a lot of people transition from ICE to EVs. So what is happening? The EV segments are growing. And this is the potential for VinFast. We want to go into the segments which show a lot of growth. That's why we are in the big SUV segments. And of course, there is competition out there. This is great. This will make us better. But we think there, there is big segment growth in terms of EVs going forward. Yeah, there's big segment growth. There's also a monetization opportunity as well, the way that these uh, newly IPO'd stocks are trading. It might be worth considering. <laughs> Michael, great to chat to you. Good luck with the unveil today and come back and speak to us soon. The moment you have a price and then we'll discuss. Michael. Will do. Thank you, you, Julia. Have a <laughs> great day. You. you too. The CEO of Invast Global there. Thank you. All right, we're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The north and west of Africa have traditionally dominated the continent's oil and gas industry. But while Nigeria continues to be the major player, its neighbor Ghana is edging its way in. Tullo is key to that effort. Founded in 1985 to explore for gas in Senegal, it now has a significant presence throughout the continent. So Africa's oil and gas business is a really interesting one, and I think it's a story of opportunity. About 40 to 50 percent of the world's total natural resources actually sit in Africa, and a large portion of that is made up of oil and gas. Uh, of course, mining and other things occupy some of that space, but the short story is that Africa has the first step you need in any kind of uh, uh, energy business, which is it has a lot of resources. We were here as a company in the mid-2000s. We feel quite proud of the fact that as a company, Tullo took a bet on a basin and a sector in a country where the oil and gas sector didn't exist. Uh, and we're very thankful that that bet materialized into commercial quantities of oil and gas. So we feel that there's somewhere in the range of 2.6 billion barrels of oil remaining in place between Jubilee and 10. On Jubilee, we've only produced about uh, 15%, 16% of the oil in place, and on 10, it's about 8%. Industry standards tell you fields like this, we should be able to produce anywhere near the range of 40 to 50% of total recovery. So there's a lot more oil to go. We need goods and services. We certainly don't do anything ourselves. And it's an industry that relies on an effective, efficient, and low-cost supply chain. Um, and as you look around Africa as a continent, you can have line of sight to that effective, reliable, low-cost, uh, and highly talented supply chain 
when you take a more continent view. You may look in certain countries and that supply chain won't exist there, but as you look around the continent, you're able to access that supply chain through other countries in the continent to help develop the resources within a different country in the continent. And Pan-African trade and Pan-African trade agreements facilitate that and is very much a fuel for any company to be able to help grow the uh, resource development and benefit the countries in which those resources exist. And finally, on first move, Harry Potter fans prepare for Hogwarts heaven. Mysterious thing, time. When in doubt, I find retracing my steps to be a wise place to begin. Oh, where to begin indeed. HBO Max says it will begin streaming Harry Potter 20th anniversary, Return to Hogwarts, on New Year's Day. The original cast will be taking part in the special, which is billed as a franchise retrospective. Lots of interviews, cast conversations and fond looks back at a truly remarkable journey. Seeing that it debuts on New Year's Day, it will be the perfect tonic for those with a Hufflepuff hangover. Or you just watch all the movies, which is basically what I do every year. <laughs> and that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.